recorded live. Sorry about that. Technical difficulties distracted me. I forgot to plug my microphone in. I had a server down and got it back up just moments before Matt hit the play button. Thank you, Matt. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, May 10th, 2013. I want to thank everybody for listening and praise Yahweh. My chair is squeaky as hell. I apologize for that. I'll try not to move too much during this program, during this presentation. Tonight is the Book of Acts, Chapter 2, Part 2. And no, we will not finish this chapter tonight. It, it's, a, it's a struggle. Um, it, it's a struggle sometimes, and, and tonight I probably went too far. I have too many notes for, for the, the, this upcoming presentation. It, it's a struggle deciding what has to be included, what, what's most pertinent to include in such a presentation, what, what probably is trite and not that important. And my perspective is different than my listeners. So a lot of listeners will say, hey, why didn't you mention this or why didn't you mention that? Well, well my perspective is different, and, and some things I don't deem are as important as, um, as others or, or, or are so important that they have to be included. A lot of the standard cross-references found in our King James Bibles, for instance, a lot of those cross-references are pretty much useless. My, my forte is an exposition, I believe, of the historicity of Scripture and, and how it fits in, into the big picture, how... Um, how we should understand the Bible in context with anthropology, archaeology, history, language, and so on and so forth, I think that's where I do best, and that's where I try to concentrate that, that, that my efforts. And, and, and for that reason, I'll skip a lot of those standard cross-references, and, and I don't even feel half of them are worthy of mention. It, it's um, that those cross-references, sometimes they're really good, but when they do things like cross-reference Genesis 3.15 and John 8.44 and, and things like that, sometimes, you know, that, that helps our cause. And just as often, the standard cross-references are, are basically irrelevant. So, so you won't find a whole lot about that here. I, I just thought I'd mention that. In the last segment of our presentation on the book of Acts, we left off our discussion with Peter's quote, from Joel chapter 2, and how we believe that James and Paul saw that prophecy of Pentecost in relation to the history of the Ecclesia of God, that the endowment of the Spirit in the apostolic age was merely a deposit of that which all Christians, and by Christians, of course, I mean the descendants of the children of Israel who have accepted the gospel of Christ, which all Christians should now expect. A greater outpouring of the Spirit of Yahweh culminating in the restoration of our race to the glorified state of our first parents, which was also evident at the transfiguration on the mount, as attested to in the Gospels. James referred to these two outpourings of the Spirit with his mention of the early 
and the later rain. Paul tells us what to expect in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where he says, from verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all fall asleep, but we shall all be changed in an instant, in the dart of an eye, with the last trumpet, for it shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall all be changed. This decay wants to be clothed in incorruptibility. And this mortal to be clothed in immortality. And when this decay shall have put on incorruptibility, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then the word that has been written shall come to pass. Death has been swallowed in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Now the sting of death is guilt or sin. And the power of guilt is the law. But gratitude is to Yahweh, in whom we, meaning the children of Israel, of course, Paul telling the Corinthians that they are indeed children of Israel in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, in whom we are being given the victory through our prince, Yahshua Christ. It can be demonstrated that the Corinthians were indeed children of Israel. Here in the next part of his discourse, Peter appeals once again to the multitude of Judea, or I should say he continues to appeal to the multitude of Judea, to consider all of the things which had recently transpired there in connection with Yahshua Christ. Additionally, in relation to where we left off in the first part of our presentation of Acts chapter 2, I want to interject this before we begin. We shall quote here from Isaiah chapter 44. Yet now, from the first verse, yet now hear, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus saith Yahweh that made thee, and formed thee from the womb, which will help thee. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and thou, Jesurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty, as Christ told the woman at the well in John chapter 4. And floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thine offspring. And they shall spring up as among the grass, as willows by the watercourses. Where we see the phrase, all flesh, in Acts 2.17, the reference is to all Israelite flesh. As that is the context of the original passage in Joel. Joel 2, from verse 27. And ye shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am Yahweh your God, and none else. And my people shall never be ashamed. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. 
and your sons and your daughters shall prophecy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. It doesn't say anything about any other people but the children of Israel in Isaiah 44 and in Joel chapter 2. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids, in those days will I pour out my spirit. Well, Isaiah chapter 44, which we have just read, as well as other scriptures, prove that only the children of Israel are Yahweh's chosen and Yahweh's servants. With this we will commence from Acts chapter 2. Verse 22, in the words of the Apostle Peter, as they are attributed by Luke. Men, Israelites, hear these words. Yahshua, the Nazorian, that's what it says, a man appointed for you by Yahweh with powers and wonders and signs, which Yahweh had done through him in your midst, even as you yourselves know. He, by the appointed will and foreknowledge of Yahweh, has surrendered, was surrendered, who crucifying through lawless hands you have slain. He was surrendered by God to the will of the people. The first perspective which must be noticed here is that Christ was a man appointed for Israel, not for Israel and the Gentiles. A man appointed for Israel. Nothing's changed from the beginning. All of the men, Peter making this appeal to, being Israelites, regardless of who else may have been present. For Peter says, men, Israelites, hear these words. Secondly, because Christ was a man appointed, does not mean that he was not also Yahweh God himself manifested in the flesh. Peter is not refuting the exclamation of Thomas, who proclaimed of the risen Christ that he was his Lord and his God. Neither is Peter refuting the testimony of John, who informs us that the word was with God in the beginning, that God, that the word was God and that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Rather, Peter is only talking to these Judean Israelite men from a worldly perspective in order to get them to consider the ministry of Christ and what things had transpired in Jerusalem during his ministry and at that time. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. All these epithets belong to Christ. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom 
to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will perform this. Yahweh sent a word unto Jacob, and it is lighted upon Israel. These things aren't for anybody else. All those who would purport the idea that one part of the scripture would somehow refute another part of the scripture do not deserve the label Christian. If one scripture seems to conflict with another, there is a problem either with the translation or with the understanding of the context of the passage in question. In very few instances, the manuscripts themselves are demonstrably corrupt. And before we declare a manuscript or a section of a manuscript corrupt, we better be able to establish that it's corrupt. We better have a firm basis for that establishment. After these things, the only shortcoming is with the reader and not with God. The only way that Yahshua Christ could be the mighty God, as Isaiah prophesied, is to be Yahweh manifest in the flesh. He is a man. Peter says he's a man. A man appointed by Yahweh. Yes, that's true. Yahweh himself? Yes, that's true. He's a man, and he is God. It's all a matter of perspective. The term Nazarene. This term only appears in the King James Version in the English twice. In the singular in Matthew 2.23, a prophecy of Christ. The discussion of a fulfillment of the prophecy of Christ concerning Christ. And in the plural where it acts chapter 24, verse 5, and Luke attributes its use by certain Judeans to describe the followers of Christ. I'll discuss this word at length. There are two different Greek words which are both said by Strong to mean of Nazareth. Those words are Nazarenus, 3479, which is always Nazarene in the Christogonian New Testament, and Nazarius, number 3480, which is always the... Nazorian in this translation. The King James Version often translates either word with the phrase of Nazareth. And the first word, 3479, Nazarenus, is the more proper of the two Greek forms conveying that meaning. Thayer does not put the phrase of Nazareth in his definition for the word Nazarahius. 3480. According to the Moulton Geddon Greek Concordance to the New Testament, from which some manuscripts may vary, Nazarenus is found only in Mark and Luke, and the word Nazarahius is found in Matthew, Luke, John, and Acts. Paul did not use the term in his epistles. In Acts 24.5, it is evident that the sect of Christians called Nazorians by the Judeans, that's what they were called, and Josephus writes of the sect about the same time, which is concurrent with the later parts of Acts. 
Now, William Whiston in Josephus translates that Nazarites. That's unfortunate. The word in Greek is Nazarahius in his Antiquities, Book 19. In a context where Josephus can only be referring to Christians, Book 19, Chapter 6. The term Nazarite appears in the King James Version of the Old Testament of the special priesthood ordained by Yahweh in Numbers chapter 6. We see the term repeated in Judges chapters 13, 16, Lamentations 4, 7, and Amos chapter 2. There in the Greek Septuagint, that term, that Old Testament term, Nazarites, when it was translated in the Greek, was translated from the Hebrew as consecrated ones a Greek word or phrase which would mean consecrated ones. However, while claims may be made concerning the ancient Nazarite priesthood in relation to Christ, this term Nazarene being a name given to Christ is not directly related to the term Nazarite or to that priesthood which is found in the Old Testament. Rather, the term comes from his home, which was in Nazareth. Yet it seems also to fulfill another prophecy. For the name Nazareth apparently comes from the Hebrew term for branch, which is Netzar, Netzer, Strong's number 5342. And Yahshua in certain other prophecies was called the branch, Messianic prophecies. Therefore, the name being applied to him indicates a fulfillment of those prophecies. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 8, Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, the high priest with the same name as Joshua Christ, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee, for they are men wondered at, for behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. Zechariah chapter 6. And speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh Yahweh of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of Yahweh. Even he shall build the temple of Yahweh, and he shall hear, I'm sorry, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne. And he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both, between Yahweh and the branch. Isaiah, chapter 11. And it shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of Yahweh. From my presentation on Luke chapter 18, I said this concerning the same word. And I quote, Now in the passages of Zechariah, the word for branch is semach, Strong's number 6780. However, the prophecy is nevertheless fulfilled in Christ. Calling him Yahshua the Nazorian is tantamount to calling him Yahshua the branch. In Isaiah 11.1, 1, the word for branch is indeed Netzer, where it says, and it shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. It appears in Acts chapter 24, 
as though the Judeans used that phrase, sect of the Nazorians, sect of the Nazarenes, to describe Christians because they would not refer to the followers of Christ as Christians, nor would they call Jesus the Christ, because the very use of the name admitted the truth that he was indeed the Messiah. This is why Paul in Acts chapter 24 is called a leader of the sect of the Nazorians and not a leader of the sect of the Christians. If the Jews had used the term, they'd have been admitting the value of the epithet. That's something we don't, what we don't see today. And, and that's a damn shame. In, in, in today's watered-down, um, Jewish-controlled television age, we use terms of people all the time that they don't deserve. Uh, I've heard Christian identity pastors refer to squat monsters as Christians. But when anybody who studies the Bible should actually know that a Christian would have to be one of Yahweh's anointed people, one of those children of Israel who actually believe and attempt to adhere to his word. That's what a Christian is. Christianity is not um, tantamount to all these other, all of these other vain philosophies where anybody could adopt the label. Christianity isn't a party label like Democrat, where anybody could claim to be a Democrat or go register as a Democrat. Christians are those who Yahweh has called. Christians can only be from the number of the children of Israel. So we see that the Judeans refused to use the label, calling Paul a leader of the sect of the Nazorians instead. Because they knew by using the label, they're admitting the fact. Today we throw around labels and, and they don't mean anything because they're, they're, they're vain and empty, because we use them cheaply. What Peter mentions in his passage, powers and wonders and signs which Yahweh had done through him in your midst, even as you yourselves know. Peter obviously expects all of these Judeans who were gathered from diverse places throughout the Oikumene, the, the Adamic world, to have heard of all the marvelous things which Christ was accredited with having done and which we read about in the Gospel accounts. Peter took it for granted that they should know these things, that these things transpired. Here I would like to discuss an account from the Roman historian Tacitus, which many critics point to in order to discredit the miracles of the gospel, but which I think indeed helps to show that those miracles certainly occurred just as the gospels relate. I'm going to read this passage from Tacitus from the Histories, Book 4, Chapter 81, from a section entitled, Signs and Wonders. This is from the Penguin Classics edition, translated by Kenneth Wellesley. And I quote, In the course of the months which Vespasian spent in Alexandria, waiting for the regular season of summer winds when the sea could be relied upon, Passages like that give us insight into events such as the, the shipwrecks Paul suffered in Acts chapter 27. Many miracles occurred, 
These seem to be indications that Vespasian enjoyed heaven's blessings and that the gods showed a certain leaning towards him. Among the lower classes at Alexandria was a blind man whom everybody knew as such. One day this fellow threw himself at Vespasian's feet, imploring him with groans to heal his blindness. He had been told to make this request by Serapis, or Serapis, I think I've heard it pronounced, the favorite god of a nation, meaning Egypt, much addicted to strange beliefs. And we must bear note that by Egypt, Tacitus is referring to Ptolemaic Egypt, to Greek Egypt. He asked that it might please the emperor to anoint his cheeks and eyeballs with the water of his mouth. Sound familiar? A second petitioner, who suffered from a withered hand, pleaded his case too, also on the advice of Serapis. Would Caesar tread upon him with the imperial foot? At first, Vespasian laughed at them and refused. When the two insisted, he hesitated. At one moment, he was alarmed by the thought that he would be accused of vanity if he failed. At the next, the urgent appeals of the two victims and the flatteries of his entourage made him sanguine of success. Finally, he asked the doctors for an opinion whether blindness and atrophy of this sort were curable by human means. The doctors were eloquent on the various possibilities. The blind man's vision was not completely destroyed, and if certain impediments were removed, his sight would return. The other victim's limb had been dislocated, but he could put it right by correct treatment. Perhaps this was the will of the gods, they added, Perhaps the emperor had been chosen to perform a miracle. Anyhow, if the cure were effected, the credit would go to the ruler. If it failed, the poor wretches would have to bear the ridicule. So Vespasian felt that his destiny gave him the key to every door and that nothing now defied belief. With a smiling expression, and surrounded by an expecting crowd of bystanders, he did what was asked. Instantly, the cripple recovered the use of his hand, and the light of day dawned again upon his blind companion. Both these incidents are still vouched for by eyewitnesses, though there is now nothing to be gained by lying, the words of the historian Tacitus relationship to the emperor Vespasian. Are the miracles of Christ substantiated in this testimony of Tacitus concerning his own small g God, Caesar? Although Christians certainly should not require secular substantiation of the Gospels, this is why I believe that Tacitus' assertions do qualify as such. The Romans worshipped their Caesar as God incarnate, and Vespasian had renewed the imperial cult which was instituted in the days of Octavian, 
who is also known as Augustus Caesar. According to the Roman historian Suetonius, the deathbed words of Vespasian were puto deus theo, or I think I'm becoming a god. Imagine that. The Egyptian pharaohs believed the same thing. Many accept this statement as a product of Vespasian's wit, but it reflects Roman beliefs whether the emperor himself took them seriously or not. Some apologetic scholars claim that Tacitus's accounts of Vespasian's miracles are laced with sarcasm. However, if that is the case, it is not conveyed very well in the translations. Tacitus portrays Vespasian as shrewd and calculating, conferring with doctors and determining his chance of success and how his possible failure may be perceived. Tacitus was not at all compelled to repeat these things if he had doubted them. And here he expresses no doubt. Tacitus, the traditionalist, certainly seems to have taken the imperial cult seriously. If these reports of the miracles of Christ, which Peter talks about, were circulating around Rome, and they certainly were, then it seems natural that Tacitus wanted to report these miracles which were attributed to Vespasian, since they would place his god, the emperor, on a level of ability with that of Christ. These miracles which are attributed to Vespasian are even very much like some of those which Christ had performed. Yet the Apostle Peter testifies in his second epistle, and I quote to Peter 1.16, For not following after cleverly devised myths have we made known to you the power and presence of our Prince Joshua Christ, but having been spectators of his majesty, in his annals of imperial Rome, Tacitus spoke disparagingly of Christ and of Christians. He described how the notoriously depraved Christians were by Nero punished with every refinement. He described how their deaths were made a joke in the circus. The truth is that while Tacitus was a sycophant to the emperor and his divus cult, his god cult, at the same time, Christians were dying quite miserable deaths on account of their testimony of Christ. Tacitus describes how Christians were arrested and how their executions were made spectacles in the circuses. It should be fully evident to the inquiring mind that sycophants, court historians, are not punished as criminals, but that good men, good men withstanding the empire, good men are indeed willing to make such ultimate sacrifices on behalf of the truth. The proof of the facts of Christ's ministry and its substance lies in the continual sacrifices which are made 
first by those men who were witnesses to his ministry. And then by their successors nearly 300 years. For it is they who gave their lives and had, in Tacitus' own words, nothing to be gained by lying, and everything to be lost unless you know that truth. Here Peter expected these men to have heard of the miracles which had been brought to them through Christ. And indeed we see that they should have no reason not to have heard of them. 1 Peter 4, from verse 12. Beloved, do not be astonished by the burning among you, taking place for a trial among you, as if a strange thing is happening to you. But just as you partake in the sufferings of Christ, you rejoice in order that also in the revelation of his honor, exulting, you would rejoice. If you are reproached in the name of Christ, you are blessed because the honor and the spirit of Yahweh rest upon you. The sufferings which Peter mentions are those same persecutions which Christians suffered on behalf of their testimony. It is very likely that Peter wrote that epistle in the very time of Nero. There is still one more aspect of this passage left to discuss, and here we shall repeat it anew from verse 22. Men, Israelites, hear these words. Yahshua the Nazorian, a man appointed for you, for Israel, by Yahweh with powers and wonders and signs, which Yahweh had done through him in your midst, even as you yourselves know, and which apparently drove pagans like Tacitus and Nero absolutely mad. He, by the appointed will and foreknowledge of Yahweh, was surrendered, who crucifying through lawless hands you have slain. The Codex Beze and the majority text have, who being taken by lawless hands, you crucifying have slain. The difference is minor. The Greek verb for crucify here, that this is a, 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 a grammar note, is prospegnumi, to fix to or on, to affix to or on which is not the usual word which appears only here in New Testament manuscripts. The usual word is staro, Strong's number 4717, which is to fence with a pale or to impalisade or to crucify, as Polybius also used the word. That verb used of Christ, staro or starao, it, it's a difficult pronunciation for me, Starine would be the infinitive. Staro would be the first person present singular. Many scoffers doubt that the word staro means to crucify as the popular accounts of the death of Christ depict. However, the Greek historian Polybius, who wrote in the second century BC, he wrote an excellent history of the, the, the Punic Wars mostly, he clearly used both that same word and its corresponding noun, staros, and a staros is a stake or a cross. It, it's often translated cross, 
And there's a reason for that. Early Christians or, or Christians of the English Christians of the Middle Ages didn't make that up. They translate stars as cross because the earliest Christians, when they translated scriptures into Latin, used a Latin word which explicitly means cross. Polybius, who wrote in the 2nd century B.C., clearly used both that same word and its corresponding noun in the same manner in his histories in Book 1, Chapter 86, where certain men in Carthage were executed by crucifixion, having been hung on stakes or crosses. There's a lot of dispute, and especially among scoffers, uh, that these things don't mean what, what, what popularly Christians perceive them to mean, and, and those disputes are fruitless when we actually examine ancient texts, right? That they come up with a lot of cunning arguments against the meaning of the terms. And, and when we actually sit down and study, all the arguments fail. They're all silly. And, and whether it was a stake or a cross is immaterial. The important thing is that he was executed. He was executed on a tree or on a piece of wood in order to fill the prophecy, fulfill the prophecy whether it be a cross, whether it would have been T-shaped, whether it would have been X-shaped, all that's immaterial. It's, it's ridiculous, too. Lawless hands. Lawless hands are hands outside of the law, meaning hands not subject to the laws of God. But Peter tells these Judean Israelites that they were nevertheless responsible for the death of Christ, where he says, who crucifying through lawless hands you have slain. Again, in verse 36, at the end of this address, Peter exclaims that therefore all the house of Israel must know with certainty that Yahweh also has made both his prince and Christ that Yahshua whom you crucified. In Acts chapter 3, in a separate discourse, which Peter gave in the temple after the healing of the lame man, Peter helps to clarify the substance of the charge which he lays against the entire Judean nation, where he says, Men, Israelites, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if our own power or piety made him to walk? The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has honored his servant Yahshua, whom you indeed handed over and denied in the presence of Pilate, who determined to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous man and requested a murderous man, Barabbas, to be pardoned for you. Then you killed the founder of life whom Yahweh raised from among the dead, of whom we are witnesses. And now, brethren, I know that you acted ignorantly, just as also your rulers. But, the, but Yahweh, the things which he announced beforehand through the mouths of all the prophets for his Christ to suffer, has fulfilled thusly. Therefore, through ignorance of the people, the will of Yahweh God was accomplished. However, the mystery of iniquity is greater than that alone. From Leviticus, chapter 5. And if a soul sin and hear the voice of swearing, and is a witness, whether he has seen or known of it, 
If he does not utter it, then he shall bear his iniquity. Therefore, the people who consented with the priests, or even those who did not object to the execution of an innocent man, but who witnessed it and remained silent, were just as responsible for the crime as those who were its authors and instigators under the law. Matthew chapter 27, verse 20. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. This is the King James Version. The governor answered and said unto them, Whither of the twain will ye that I release unto you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate saith unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? They all say unto him, they all say unto him, Let him be crucified. That Greek verb is imperative, and I would translate it. He must be crucified. The chief priests and elders persuaded the multitude, and the multitude responded, he must be crucified. Mark chapter 15, a second witness of the same thing. But the chief priest moved the people, he words it a little differently, that he should rather release Barabbas unto them. And Pilate answered and said again unto them, What will ye then that I shall do unto him who you call king of the Judeans? And they cried out again, Crucify him. Then Pilate said unto them, Why, what evil has he done? And they cried out the more exceedingly, Crucify him. Luke chapter 23, verse 23, one verse. And they were instant with loud voices, requiring that he might be crucified. And the voices of them and of the chief priests prevailed. So the priests the rulers of the people, the priests were able to persuade the multitude. And for that reason, the entire nation bears the guilt of his death. Not only the Edomites, because under the law, those people, whether they be Edomites or Israelites, assenting to his death, bear some of the responsibility. Peter blames the nation in general, because the entire nation was at least in part guilty for what had been done by those chief priests and the multitude which had gathered before Pilate on the day of the crucifixion. They weren't all Edomites, and all of the Israelites in Jerusalem allowed them to get away with that. The crucifixion occurred on the Passover, when all Israel was obliged to be present at the temple. The multitude agreed with the intent of the high priest, and therefore, because they did not resist the injustice, they were just as guilty of the crime. Again, in Acts chapter 4, in verses 8 and 10, Peter addresses the leaders of the people and elders in reference to Yahshua Christ, the Missourian, whom you crucified. In Acts chapter 5, addressing the high priest who had been questioning him directly, Peter more pointedly says, from verse 30, The God of our fathers raised up Yahshua, whom you had taken in hand, hanging upon a timber. Him, founder and savior, 
Yahweh elevated to his right hand for which to give repentance and a remission of errors to Israel. And we are witnesses of these words and the Holy Spirit which Yahweh has given to those who were obedient to him. Here Peter states, well, first, that the salvation of Christ is only to those in Israel who are obedient to Yahweh. Peter also infers that this high priest is not among those who would be obedient to God. The book of Acts, as we have said, is a book of transition. And it clearly took the apostles quite some time to sort out the events surrounding the ministry, death and resurrection of Christ in relation to the scripture, in relation to the children of Israel, and in relation to the rulers and people of Judea. By the time in which he wrote his epistles, Peter demonstrates and relates a much deeper understanding of the iniquity in Israel, where in 2 Peter chapter 2 he relates that iniquity to those eternal, eternal enemies of Yahweh our God. From 2 Peter chapter 2, from verse 4, For if Yahweh did not spare the messengers who had done wrong, but having cast them into Tartarus into a pit of darkness, he had delivered them being kept for judgment. And he did not spare the old society, but he had kept Noah, the eighth proclaimer of righteousness, having brought a deluge upon the society of the impious. And the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah burning to ashes, he had condemned to destruction, having been set forth for an example of those who were going to be impious. And he delivered the righteous lot who had been oppressed by the licentious conduct of the lawless. For with sights and reports, the righteous one dwelling among them by day by day tormented a righteous soul with their lawless deeds. The prince knows to deliver the pious from trial, but to keep the unrighteous being punished for a day of judgment, and especially those going after the flesh with desires of defilement and despising authority, presumptuous adventurers, not fearing honor, they blaspheme. Where the messengers, being greater in power and ability, do not bring against them a judgment for blasphemy is appropriate. But these, having been born as natural, having been born as natural, irrational animals, into destruction and corruption, in which blaspheming they are ignorant in their corruption, they shall also perish doing injustice for the wages of injustice, regarding luxury of pleasure by day, stains and disgraces reveling in their deceits, feasting together with you, having eyes full of adultery and unable to cease from wrongdoing, enticing unstable souls, having hearts exercised for greediness, cursed children, abandoning the straight road they have wandered astray, following in the way of Balaam, the son of Bosor, who had loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he had a rebuke for his own transgression. A dumb beast of burden with the voice of a man, having spoken clearly, had curbed the derangement of the prophet. These are streams without water and clouds being driven by a tempest, for whom the gloom of darkness is kept, 
for uttering excessive vanity, they entice the licentious desires of the flesh with the licentious desires of the flesh. Those nearly escaping who are returning to error, sounds like the world's pornographers, proclaiming for themselves freedom, they become slaves of corruption. For by that which one is overcome, to this he is enslaved. For if escaping the pollutions of society by the knowledge of our Prince and Savior, Yahshua Christ, and these being entangled again are overcome, the ends of them become worse than the beginnings. For it was better for them not having known the way of righteousness than they know turning away from the holy commandment having been delivered to them. But the truth of the proverb happened to them. A dog returns to its own vomit and a sow being cleansed to rolling in mud. The angels that sinned, those going after the flesh with desires of defilement, those who despise the authority of God, the presumptuous adventurers who blaspheme, not fearing God, those who were born as natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed, as the King James Version has it, which are stains and disgraces, reveling in their deceits, feasting together with you. Here Peter must mean that they are not of Israel in the first place, because obviously there is no chance of repentance for them and no offer for repentance to them. These are they unable to cease from wrongdoing, being cursed children, as Peter calls them. Streams without water because they are broken cisterns. Those race-mixed people of Jeremiah chapter 2 who are unable to wash off their iniquity. Even when they see the way of righteousness, and the Edomites had the law, Even when they see the way of righteousness, they are like dogs who return to their own vomit because that is where they originated. They are like sows rolling in mud because they are swine and not sheep. They did not originate with the sheepfold. Here in his epistle, 30 years after these events in the book of Acts, Peter reveals... as he learned over the course of events following the resurrection of Christ, that the mystery of iniquity is indeed genetic. The Apostle Paul also warned about the Judeans, or perhaps by this time, more appropriately, Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and have persecuted us, and they please not God and are contrary to all men. 2 Thessalonians 2.15 Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, Beware of dogs. They return to their own vomit. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. 
They are dogs returned to their own vomit, even if they had the benefit of the law and the prophets. From Psalm chapter 50, from verse 16. But under the wicked, God says, what have you to do to declare my statutes? Or that thou should take, or that you should take my covenant in your mouth. Psalm chapter 50 is telling us that the wicked don't get his law in the first place. It's not for them. The law and the covenants are not for them. In Romans chapter 9, Paul explains that the vessels of mercy are the children of Jacob, Israel. And the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction are the descendants of Esau Dam, who can be traced back through the Old Testament to those same angels that sinned that Peter talks about. It is the gospel of Christ which is to divide the wheat from the tares, and that process began in Judea at its very beginning. Peter and Jude in his epistle parts of which closely parallel to Peter chapter 2. It's like they were reading the same notes. Take a very esoteric approach to this mystery of iniquity. Yet in their own way, both of them attribute it to the angels that sinned or to the angels that left their first estate. John also speaks somewhat esoterically of these antichrists, where in his first epistle in chapter 2, he says, from verse 18, Little children, it is the last hour, and just as you have heard that the Antichrist comes, even now many Antichrists have been born, from which we know that it is the last hour. They came out from us, but they were not from of us. For if they were from of us, they would have abided with us but so that they would be made manifest that they are all not from of us. John's epistle can only refer to those mixed-race Canaanite and Edomite Judeans known today, known in his time and ever since, as Jews. Paul's pragmatic and historical approach combined with these testimonies should give us all of the understanding that we require to ascertain these things. As John says, that they came out from us, but they were not from of us. Paul says, and not all those who were from Israel are those of Israel in Romans 9, 6, where he proceeds to compare Jacob and Esau. It is a fact of both scripture, for instance, in Ezekiel chapter 35, and history, for instance, in Joseph's, in his Antiquities book 13, or in Strabo in his Geography book 16. It is a fact of history that the Judeans of the first century were primarily comprised of both Israelites and Edomites. It is also a fact that the high priests who had Christ put to death were Sadducees and Edomites, which we shall discuss at length in Acts chapter 5. 
when we present that here. In a few weeks, Yahweh willing. Paul called Esau a fornicator and a profane person in Hebrews 12:16, and that is why the Edomites were cursed children and vessels of wrath fitted for destruction, because their race-mixing father had sired them from the daughters of Canaan, who themselves were in part descended from both the Rephaim and the children of Cain, who were all the seed of the angels that sinned. Peter came to understand the mystery of iniquity much later in life. By the time he wrote his epistles, he understood it much better, I believe, than he did here at the first Pentecost. Peter had to learn a lot of things over the course of his own ministry after the death of Christ and, and, and his resurrection. Acts chapters 10 and 11 make that perfectly evident that Peter was still learning. Acts 2, verse 24. Whom Yahweh has resurrected, having undone the travails of death, in which manner it was not possible for him to be held by it. Isaiah chapter 25 from verse 8. He will swallow up death and victory. And Yahweh God will wipe away the tears from off all faces. And the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off all the earth. For Yahweh has spoken it. And it shall be in that day. It shall be said in that day. Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him. And he will save us. This is Yahweh. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Acts 2.25 Indeed, David said for him, I saw Yahweh before my face continually, for he is on my right hand that I am not shaken. The Greek word proorao may be to foresee as Brenton has it in his Septuagint rendering, of this very same text at Psalm 16.8. And as the King James Version has it here. Yet, in the Christogenian New Testament, it is to see something before one, which is after the primary definition of the word provided by Liddell and Scott. So with the praise, and opion mu, which means my face, it is to see before, or here in the first person singular, it is I saw before in the appropriate tense. The sense of the word here is spatial and not necessarily temporal as the other versions, the other versions read it. Necessarily repeating the word before a second time, which is not in the Greek. It doesn't mean here I foresaw even though the King James would probably like that. The, the translators would probably like another messianic prophecy. We really don't need one. I saw Yahweh. I saw Yahweh before my face continually. In the Christogenian New Testament, this leads to another difference I have with the manuscripts. In the Christogenian New Testament, the Greek word kurios 
is usually rendered as Yahweh, where the context is set in the Old Testament because it was the Tetragrammaton from Hebrew which represents the name Yahweh which became the word, the title, curious in the Septuagint. So very often in the New Testament, it's subjective whether curious should be understood to refer to Christ or whether curious should be understood to refer to Yahweh God. Now, to me, personally, it doesn't matter because Yahweh manifest as a man in the flesh is Yahshua Christ. Yahshua Christ is Yahweh God manifest in the flesh. They're one and the same. Old Testament, New Testament, it really doesn't matter. It shouldn't matter to Christians. However, it's subjective when looking at Curios in the New Testament. It's often subjective whether it refers to Christ, Yahweh manifest in the flesh, or to Yahweh the Spirit and the creator of the universe in heaven, the God of the Old Testament. But they're one and the same. Otherwise, you're really not a Christian. Now here, in this passage, the Codex's Sinaiticus and Beze had the word my after the phrase ton curion, where I would say, I would write, I saw my prince before my face continually. Verse 26. On account of this, my heart is rejoiced and my tongue has exalted. And further, even my flesh shall rest in hope. Or literally, my flesh shall settle upon hope. Because you shall not leave my soul behind in Hades, nor give over your sanctioned one to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You shall fill me with gladness with your presence. Verses 25 through 28 contain a nearly verbatim quote of the Septuagint Greek version of Psalm chapter 16. It's actually chapter 15 in the Septuagint. In the King James, we know it as Psalm chapter 16, verses 8 through 11. There are only minute differences in these verses among all of the Greek manuscripts. Namely, the addition of the word for my in verse 25, which I already mentioned here, and a minor but irrelevant difference in the word order in verse 26. Except for these two small differences, the New Testament manuscripts have a difference of only one other letter with the Septuagint Greek text, which is an omega rather than an omicron in the first verb which makes for no difference at all in translation. So this and, and many other quotes of the Old Testament and Acts are practically verbatim from the Septuagint. Hades is a transliteration of the Greek word, Strong's number 86 in his Greek dictionary, 
for the underworld abode of the dead. Now, a lot of them, I've seen a lot of Christians become offended with this use of the word Hades. Why would Christianity be referencing an entity that's seen as pagan in Greek literature? It is pagan in Greek. Hades. It is, Hades was actually originally the name of the god, Tartarus. The, the name of the god who oversaw Tartarus. Tartarus was the name of the underworld abode of the dead in Greek. In the original, in the epic cycle, and, and in the earliest Greek poetry, Hades was the god who presided over Tartarus. Tartarus was the place. Many Christians have become offended because I've taken that word Hades in the Christian New Testament and transliterated it because it's a proper noun. It should be transliterated. Why do Greek pagans, well, why did Christians adopt this idea from Greek pagans of Hades? Well, because Greek pagans got it from Hebrew Yahweh worshipers. That's where the idea came from. That's how it got into Greek. They got it from their Hebrew ancestors. Of course, the concept also exists in ancient Sumer. It exists in ancient Babylon. It exists amongst the Germanic tribes. Niflheim, overseen by the goddess Hela, for which we get the word hell. These things prove not only Hades, and, and it's, it, it's, it, it was seen as the equivalent of the Hebrew Sheol, the underworld abode of the dead in the Old Testament, these things prove that these cultures have the same origin. Being identity Christians, we shouldn't reject these things. We should embrace them. Not only should we understand above all others who read the Bible that the Greek culture and the Hebrew culture are the same, and we should expect it to be the same. And it was the same early on, before the Greek diverged in, in the Hellenistic period. They were more, much more similar cultures in the period of the epic cycle and the tragic poets. We should not only glory at that and understand it, we should embrace it because it's true. The pagan ideas came from the Hebrew Old Testament or from the corresponding literature of other nations with the same origination, the Sumerians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, all having come from that Genesis 10 Adamic race. They all shared the same culture. And we had lots of divergences along the way. 
The phrase, your sanctioned one, is from a substantive use of the Greek word hosios, Strong's 37.41, an adjective which means hallowed, sanctioned by the law of God, as opposed to dikahias, or sanctioned by human law. That's the, the definitions provided by Liddell and Scott. Usually rendered as holy in the King James Version, in that version, hosios is not distinguished from hagios. Hagios means devoted to the gods, sacred or holy. Because hosios is used to denote something which is sanctioned by the law of God as opposed to the laws of man, here with the possessive pronoun referring to God, it must be, as a substantive, your sanctioned one. It refers to David himself in Psalm 16, but it also refers prophetically to Christ, as Peter is about to explain here in his discourse in Acts. David, being the temporal anointed king, was a type for Christ, who is the eternal anointed king. And many of David's writings clearly applied both to the events in his own life and as prophecies in reference to Christ. Therefore, Christ is also often termed David. Christ is called David, speaking prophetically in the prophets Ezekiel and Hosea. Ezekiel thirty-seven twenty-four, Yahweh says, And David my servant shall be king over them. He doesn't mean the David from the Old Testament. He means Yahshua Christ as a type. David is a type for Yahshua Christ, for the coming Messiah. And they shall all have one shepherd. Only Christ could be that one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt, and they shall dwell therein, even they and their children, and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Hosea chapter 3, Afterward shall the children of Israel return and seek Yahweh their God and David their king, and shall fear Yahweh and his goodness in the later days. David was a type for Christ. Peter here refers to the tomb of David. Verse 29. Men, brothers, I had to speak with frankness to you concerning the patriarch David. Peter wasn't belittling David. He was applying David's prophecies to Christ, which was rightful for him to do. Because he also has died and is buried, and his tomb is among us unto this day. That the tomb of David was known at the time of Christ is evident from the pages of Josephus, who in his antiquities, in book 13, chapter 8, and in Antiquities, book 16, chapter 7, describes how David's tomb was pillaged, first by Hyrcanus, 
circa 130 B.C., where Hyrcanus removed 3,000 talents of silver from David's tomb. And then later, nearly 100 years later, it was pillaged by the Edomite king Herod, where Herod took all of the gold furnishings and other implements found in David's tomb. Josephus described how Herod needed the money due to his lavish spending, which he undertook to curry favor in all of the various cities of Judea. How typical of an Edomite, redistributing wealth that belongs to others for his own political gain. When you study history, you see the same repetitive patterns over and over. Verse 30, therefore being a prophet, and here Peter rightfully considers David a prophet, and one who knows that Yahweh had sworn an oath to him that one from the fruit of his loins is to sit upon the throne. The Codex Beze strangely has here the fruit of his heart. And then inserts the words, according to the flesh to resurrect the Christ and sit upon his throne. After loins, the majority text, and therefore the King James inserts a similar phrase, that according to the flesh to resurrect the Christ, who, followed by the words, is to sit upon his throne. Verse 31, having foreseen that he had spoken concerning the resurrection of the Christ, and that he would not be left behind in Hades, nor his flesh see corruption, Hades, again, that word for the Greek, underworld abode of the dead. And the Greeks believed that the spirits of the departed actually did abide in Hades. And they wrote about it quite often. One example is Homer's Odyssey, where there's an entire chapter which depicts Odysseus descending into Hades and speaking with the souls of the departed, of his departed friends and family. Another example is in the tragic poet. I don't remember if it was a Aeschylus or Euripides. I believe it was a Aeschylus. The name of the play is Alcestis. And in that poem, which is also a play, Heracles is depicted as descending into Hades to bring back the departed Alcestis and to restore her to life as a reward for the sacrifice which she made dying for her husband. And he restored the dead Alcestis to, his, to her husband. We see these beliefs in the resurrection of the dead amongst the ancient Greeks all the time the eternal spirit amongst the ancient Greeks all the time. That's because these people were basically descendants of the Hebrews and carried these stories with them. At least several tribes of the Greeks were, the Dorians, the Danans. The Ionians were related, but they weren't descendants of the Hebrews. They were more distant cousins. Verse 31. 
Having foreseen, he had spoken concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that he would not be left behind in Hades, nor his flesh see corruption. This is Yahshua, whom Yahweh has resurrected, of whom all of us are witnesses. The majority text, and hence the King James Version, has his soul would, his soul would not be left behind. All of the major ancient codices want that word for soul. Peter explains that David, being a prophet, had written these things and had nevertheless died, his tomb in Jerusalem being the proof of his death. Whereas Christ, who was resurrected, must be he whom David had spoken of when he wrote this passage which Peter has cited here from Psalm 16. Peter is using the psalm to prove that Christ is the Messiah. Peter's using the psalm to prove that it was the Messiah that David was writing about and not himself, because David was indeed deceased. Verse 33, Therefore, having been exalted with the right hand of Yahweh, and having received the promise of the Holy Spirit from the Father, he is poured forth, referring to the gifts of the Spirit of Pentecost, he has poured forth this which you see and hear. For David had not gone up into the heavens, but he himself says, Yahweh said to my master, the King James there has, the Lord said to my Lord, I will get to that in a minute, Yahweh said to my master, sit at my right hand until I shall place your enemies as a footstool for your feet. Therefore all the house of Israel must know with certainty that Yahweh also has made both his prince and Christ, that Yahshua whom you crucified. Peter makes an analogy because the body of David was dead and buried and not resurrected. But the body of Christ was resurrected, and he had ascended into heaven. And with Peter, all of these other apostles accompanying him are witnesses to these things. Therefore, he asserts that Christ must be the promised Messiah, the Lord which David had spoken of in Psalm 110, which Peter quotes here in verses 34 and 35. Psalm 110, verse 1. This quote from Psalm 110 and the Greek text of Acts, except for one minor variation in a few manuscripts which want a single letter, an article, is identical to that of the Septuagint. Again, we see an, an, an almost absolutely identical quote of the Septuagint Greek text in the New Testament. The first few words of the Greek phrase in the quote from the psalm is ipin curios to curio mu, which rendered in the King James Version is the Lord said unto my Lord. That's very literal. In both the Greek and the English versions, it is the same in the psalms and here in Acts. However, to render the phrase so that it makes sense in English while maintaining the sense of what was apparently said in the original Hebrew, 
I have resorted to the Masoretic text. In the Masoretic text, the first occurrence of Lord, the Greek kurios, is from Strong's Hebrew number 3068, which is the Tetragrammaton, Yahweh. Yahweh said to my Lord. The second occurrence of Lord is from the Hebrew number 113, Adon, which is therefore rendered here as master. Adon is a Lord, but it's a master. The Tetragrammaton should not be substituted for with a title. The context surely supports the rendering supplied here. Yahweh said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand until I shall place your enemies as a footstool for your feet. That's what the Hebrew says, according to the Masoretic text. It must also be noted that the continued use of the Greek word kurios, referring to Christ, shows that Yahshua was not disagreeable to the Septuagint usage of the term, which was so often applied to him by the apostles as a title, not as a name. Yahshua Christ challenged the Pharisees with this same citation, Psalm 110, concerning the nature of the Messiah, and the Pharisees could not answer him. This is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Here it is from Matthew chapter 22, from verse 41. Then upon the Pharisees gathering together, Yahshua questioned them, saying, What do you think concerning the Christ? Whose son is he? They say to him, That of David. He says to them, Then how does David by the Spirit call him Master, saying, Yahweh has said to my Master, Sit at my right hand until when I should place your enemies beneath your feet. So if David calls him Master, How is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor did anyone venture from that day to question him any longer. The answer to Yahshua's question to the Pharisees in in that instance is evident in Isaiah chapter 11, which we've already cited here. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. In Revelation chapter 22, likewise, Yahshua Christ calls himself the root and the offspring of David. The only way that this could be is for him to be both God and man. Thus, Peter uses this psalm to demonstrate to these Judeans that Yahshua Christ was indeed their promised Messiah. That's also the only way. The only way that Christ could be both David's master and David's son is for him to be both God and man. The extraordinary gift of tongues 
where Peter says that the Spirit supplied that which they were witnessing. The extraordinary gift of tongues accompanying this testimony made it believable that it was a portent from God himself that these things which Peter attests must be true. The gifts of tongues insisted that they believe it because they saw it and marveled for themselves. Verse 37. Now hearing, they had pierced their hearts and said to Peter and to the rest of the ambassadors, or apostles, Men, brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, it says, and each of you must be immersed in the name of Yahshua Christ for remission of your errors or sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They had pierced their hearts, meaning that they were truly sorrowful that these things had happened. And therefore, they must be accepting of Peter's testimony. It is clear until Acts chapter 10 that the apostles were still baptizing after the baptism of John, which meant using a body of running water such as a river or stream, as part of a baptism ritual. However, in Acts chapter 11, Peter realizes that such a ritual was not necessary in order to receive the Holy Spirit. From that point, water was no longer mentioned in connection with the idea of baptism. And both Peter and Paul later dismiss it, and they dismiss its use in their epistles. For this reason, Luke opens this book of Acts with the statement by Christ that John baptized in water, but you shall be baptized in the Holy Spirit after not many days hence, referring to this baptism of the Spirit which occurred at Pentecost, which first occurred at Pentecost. These things shall be discussed more fully when we arrive at our presentation of those later chapters of Acts. Verse 39. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all those in the distance, as many as the Prince our God should call. The Codex Beze has the promises to us and to our children. Again, this phrase in the Christian New Testament, the Prince our God, referring to Christ, may have been rendered Yahweh our God, since the Greek word kurios was used in the New Testament both as a replacement for the Tetragrammaton in quotes from the Old Testament, hence Yahweh, and as a title, as a title for Christ. Lord in the King James and most other versions, but Prince in the Christogenian New Testament. And I have reasons for doing that. I will elucidate them one day here. As many as Yahweh our God should call. People do not call or choose God. Rather, the scriptures teach everywhere that God chooses people. And the scriptures also teach everywhere that God is only chosen and that God only recognizes 
the Adamic people of the children of Israel, especially Amos 3.2, where he tells Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Psalm 105 from verse 6. O ye seed of Abraham his servant, ye children of Jacob his chosen. That's never been changed. He is Yahweh our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He has remembered his covenant forever. There's no change. The word which he commanded to a thousand generations. If we don't have a thousand generations, there sure as hell isn't any change. Which covenant he made with Abraham and his oath unto Isaac. And he confirmed the same unto Jacob for a law and to Israel for an everlasting covenant. A thousand generations is a long time, but it's only an allegory. The covenant is forever. It will extend beyond a thousand generations. It's only for Israel. Psalm 135 from verse 2. You did stand in the house of Yahweh, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise Yahweh, for Yahweh is good. Sing praises unto his name, for it is pleasant. For Yahweh has chosen Jacob unto himself and Israel for his peculiar treasure. For I know that Yahweh is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Isaiah 41. We quoted some of these passages last week in relation to Peter's earlier discourse in Acts chapter 2 concerning the children of Israel upon whom Yahweh's name is placed. Isaiah 41 from verse 8, But thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen the seed of Abraham, my friend. Thou whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called thee from the chief men thereof and said unto thee, Thou art my servant. None of these words in Peter can be taken out of this context. Peter's addressing men of Israel. He is not taking these words out of this context. There's no change from the time of Isaiah to the time of Peter. There's no change from the time of Matthew 15, 24. I've come only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. To the time of the first Pentecost. Thou art my servant. I have chosen thee, meaning Israel. Isaiah 41, verse 10, or verse 9. And not cast thee away. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. I will help thee. Yeah, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Isaiah 43, from verse 10. We read the earlier part of Isaiah 43 last week. Ye are my witnesses, saith Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen. It's Israel over and over and over again. That ye may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I am Yahweh, and there is 
no Savior beside me. I have declared and have saved, and I have showed when there was no strange God among you. Therefore ye are my witnesses, saith Yahweh, that I am God. Yea, before the day was, I am he. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. I will work, and who shall let it? Thus saith Yahweh, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I have sent to Babylon, and have brought down all their nobles, and the Chaldeans whose cry is in the ships. I am Yahweh, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. That can't be extended beyond the simple concepts that God, Yahweh, God is the God of Israel, and no one else. These words cannot be broken. Peter here in this very passage is addressing men of Israel and tells them that the promise is to you and your children. And a mention of children would be unnecessary to repeat if the promise were to anyone else and anyone's children. Why mention children at all? The promise is for everyone, right? Wrong. The reference to all those in the distance, as many as the prince our God should call, is a reference to as many of dispersed Israel, which Yahweh had promised to call in the law and the prophets. Again, from Isaiah 43, where Yahweh addresses the children of Israel, Fear not, for I, will bring, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east, as many in the distance, as our God should call. I will bring thy seed from the east, and gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Even everyone that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. I have formed him. I have made him. All references to the children of Israel from the beginning of Isaiah 43. And from Luke chapter 1 where the promise of the ministry of Christ is expressed by Mary. I'm sorry, where the purpose of the ministry of Christ is ex expressed by Mary. I need new glasses. He has come to the aid of his servant Israel, only Israel, to call mercy into remembrance, just as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And again from that same chapter, where the purpose of the ministry of Christ is again expressed by Zechariah. Blessed is Yahweh, the God of Israel, that he has visited and brought about redemption for his people and has raised a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. Just as he spoke through the mouths of his holy prophets from of old, preservation from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us. We can't convert those enemies to our side. Dogs can't be sheep. To bring about mercy with our fathers and to call into remembrance his holy covenant. The oath which he swore to Abraham our father, which is given to us, being delivered fearlessly from the hands of our enemies. 
to serve him in tithing and in righteousness before him for all of our days. The enemies aren't going to be converted. Other scriptures tell us they're going to be destroyed. Verse 40, Acts chapter 2. And with many other words, he affirmed and exhorted them, saying, you must be saved from this crooked race. Of course, these references are to Peter. So then, those accepting his account were immersed, and they added in that day about 3,000 souls. How could one be saved from a generation? A generation that one was born into and has no choice but to be a part of. Referring to the King James translation. One need not be saved from a period of time. However, one indeed can be saved from a crooked race. This substantiates the assertions made here earlier that a portion of Judea was not of Israel, but indeed they were cursed children. As Peter wrote in his epistle, they were natural brute beasts. They were made in order to be destroyed, as Paul calls the Edomites vessels fitted for destruction. Peter calls them natural brute beasts made in order to be destroyed. By the end of the book of Acts, by the time they wrote their epistles, Peter and Paul were on the same page. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 15, we see the same Greek word, genea, which was translated in the King James Version as generation here. And in Philippians, it was translated as nation, where Paul spoke of a crooked and perverse nation, which is the way we see the sentence in the King James. It's the same word that we see here, Ganea, translated generation. You can't be saved from an untoward generation. How can you be saved from the period of time you were born in? That's kind of silly. Again, in that same phrase in the King James where they have untoward generation, that word untoward is scolious, which is quite literally crooked. The mystery of this iniquity, as Paul explains, was that the substance of the population was for the most part divided among the offspring of both Jacob and Esau. Here we shall end our presentation of this part of Acts chapter 2, and we shall commence next week by further elaborating on Peter's words here in connection with the same theme. Prayerfully, next week we will finish Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 3. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and only Israel. Good night.